Hello and welcome to the summer conclusion of series five of the Family Law Podcast. I am Mark Ablett. I am thrilled to be joined today by Sadie Glover of BP Collins Solicitors, and perhaps more importantly, author of the recently released Practical Guide to Short Marriages for Family Lawyers, published by Law Brief Publishing. Sadie's marriage with family law, though, is far from short. She's a partner with BP Collins with 16 years of experience of advising clients across the range of private family law matters. It's very exciting to have her on the podcast. Welcome, Sadie. Oh, thank you, Mark. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. Oh, that's all right. And obviously, given the subject of your book, we're going to be talking about special contribution in long marriages. And no, I joke. Obviously, we're talking about short marriages. Um, listeners will know that short marriages are still a difficult area. Do we do we take out what we put in? Do we share? Do we ring fence more strongly? Well, frankly, if you want to know, keep on listening and buy Sadie's book. <laughs> um, so, Sadie, I'm going to start with the bleeding obvious. When we say a short marriage, what do we actually mean? Well, there's no standard legal definition of a short marriage, but I think it's generally accepted that a marriage of sort of five years or less would be regarded as being short. Um, As you know, the the duration of the marriage is just one of the limbs of the matrimonial, the Section 25 Matrimonial Clauses Act the court must consider um, as 252D. uh, And so it's relevant for those purposes. And of course, we're not we're not talking about everything's a scale, right? We're not talking about there's a there's a different approach if it's five years in a day. It's all relative. It's all relative, absolutely. And um, and if we talk about marriages, often a debate I find myself having, I have to say, are we talking about from date of marriage or earlier? Well, no, I, I mean, we're talking about from the date of cohabitation, effectively. Um, the case law has really sort of evolved over uh, the years from sort of pre-white era to uh, more recently. Um, it is generally accepted now that uh, periods of cohabitation will be added to the length of the marriage where parties move seamlessly into marriage from cohabitation. Um, and the sort of there's quite good authorities to that effect, GW and RW in 2003, Um, the court effectively said it'd be unrealistic not to include periods of cohabitation in the duration of marriage. And likewise, periods of um, defined formal separation ought not to be included. Mm. And I think in that case in particular, um, one cancelled out the other, so it was all neutral in the end. Uh, The the principle was compounded in CO and CO in 2004, and then in more recent um, case law in uh, Lawrence and Gallagher, uh, 2012, I think. Mind you, that's not so recent now, is it? <laughs> um, and that yeah, was in the context of civil partnerships. So, and that involved a partnership of 11 years prior to. It, it makes sense, really, doesn't it? Because we're really looking at period of financial intertwining, and obviously, once you start living with someone, generally, you become financially intertwined. Well, absolutely. And if there's sort of no change between the relationship from when you cohabited to when you married, then why why shouldn't it all be uh, regarded as the same? Absolutely. Um, So we'll talk about capital, I think, just to start with, really. Um, And we'll keep it broad brush. But does the court have necessarily a different approach for um, short marriages versus long marriages let's we'll sort of we can talk in big money senses first I think 
Yeah, um, so I think uh, certainly my interpretation is that the approach to each case must absolutely be the same, albeit the outcome may be slightly different when dealing with a short marriage, because the court always has to apply the Section 25 criteria to each case, as I said earlier, and duration of the marriage is just one of the limbs of consideration there. I suppose that, I mean, there, there's in your book, which I, I, I read, very, it was very enjoyable to read, I have to say, really easy to read. Um, you talk about Foster and Foster 2003 case, interesting one because it's a, I think it's a court of appeal judgment, but really dismissing an appeal and and sanctioning a, an approach from a deputy uh, from a district judge, but not really adopting that approach itself, where they they got effectively got out what they put in. I mean, is that something that you see with short marriages, where there's enough money to to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in the case of Foster and Foster, the, the court really sought to uh, apply the white principles, the white and white principles to that case. So it involved um, a husband and wife in their early 30s with no children. And I think they've been married for four years. Um, both parties worked throughout the course of the marriage um, with the wife earning more than the husband. Um, they amassed considerable assets during the course of the marriage with the wife's financial contributions being significantly higher than those of the husbands, and this was largely due to her higher earnings. Um, the district judge, or the judge at first instance, sought to return the parties' um, contributions brought prior to the marriage and after separation to them. He then divided the matrimonial property equally, which left the wife with 61% and the husband with 39% of the assets. Um, the wife then appealed on the grounds that the judge didn't give enough weight to her matrimonial contributions. Um, the circuit judge then allowed the wife's appeal and increased her share to 70%, reducing the husband's to 30%. So perhaps unsurprisingly, the court, the husband then appealed to the Court of Appeal. Uh, the Court of Appeal then allowed the husband's appeal and restored the order of the district judge on the grounds that there should be no discrimination between the parties, so as per white and white, on the basis of their respective roles and that one earned more than the other, um, and the man marriage and its financial success was effectively a joint enterprise, which the parties ought to be able to share in equally. Um, secondly, the fact that the marriage was a short one was irrelevant to how the wealth generated during the course of the marriage should be divided. And that uh, the circuit judge could only really interfere with the district judge's order on the basis of procedural beg your pardon, irregularity, or because the decision was plainly wrong. And because neither of these uh, factors applied, um, you know, it was it was determined that the district judge decision, um, he, the circuit judge was wrong to interfere with that decision. Yeah, and you see that logic, really, it's at the core of Miss Justice Mostyn's judgment in ENL, isn't it, that, that share the matrimonial request. Yes. Uh, and that's how you reflect the the, the duration of the marriage point, because if it's shorter marriage, the matrimonial request is going to be smaller. Absolutely. Uh, and, and yes, I mean, in, that's exactly what Mostyn sought to do in, in ENL. I suppose the only problem is, I said we'll talk about big money cases, but you know, day to day we all see needs cases much more frequently. Is it is it fair to say that the length of the marriage starts to become a bit academic where it's... um where it's a needs case if you've got a two-year marriage and there's not enough money to go around are we really going to be focusing on sharing principles well yeah i mean i think um as per mostin in uh, enl you know he said that the duration of the marriage impacts forcefully and directly upon the assessment of needs 
um, needs are likely to be less generously interpreted and standard of living enjoyed during the marriage is likely to be less persuasive when the marriage is short. Of course, this is in terms of sort of big money cases. Um, and, you know, it, again, he said in FF and KF that the court has an almost unbounded uh, discretion when it comes to needs. Um, and so save in cases of real hardship, needs must be causally related to the marriage. Um, but you're quite right in sort of short marriages where there isn't enough to go around. And obviously, you know, needs um, are going to be the most magnetic factor. Yeah, but I think it is interesting, as you say, it's 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 needs are such a flexible concept and we see varying attempts to redefine needs in 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 juicy correspondence files and that kind of thing <laughs> um, and and it is there are so many factors and one of the factors that I think was argued in ENL that was dismissed really was childlessness or or, or the existence of a child how, how how do we factor that in yeah, so uh, in ENL, I think it was um, put on behalf of the husband that uh, you, the fact that the marriage was effectively childless affected the quality of the relationship and should have a bearing on the sharing principle. Um, Mostyn was decidedly unimpressed by that argument and said that, in fact, that approach uh, would be discriminatory. Um, clearly, the presence of children in a relationship marriage will have a bearing in that their future needs have to be met. Um, and if we go back a bit um, to some of the earlier cases where there's a couple of examples where the award is perhaps more significant than it would otherwise have been owing to the presence of children. And the first obvious one, a pre-white case of C&C, um, was an exceptional case in that uh, the parties met, married, had a child and separated in the space of about nine and a half months. Um, Lord Justice Ward awarded a lump sum of £195,000 uh, to the wife for housing and £19,500 uh, uh, by way of secured periodical payments on a joint lives basis, plus a uh, child maintenance award of £8,000 uh, per annum. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the husband appealed, but that appeal was dismissed on the basis that the award fell within the wide bracket of discretion, albeit at the top end. And we had a sort of similar situation with Mr. Justice Mumby in B&B in 2002, uh, where, again, there was a short marriage. Uh, but uh, he found that the wife would effectively have to contribute to the marriage for the next two decades in bringing up the child and her earning capacity would therefore suffer. And uh, she was awarded significant periodical payments on a joint lives basis and a lump sum for housing. You know, I suppose the tension is, of course, is that with you're looking at the sharing principle one of the things that really backs that up is that it's presumed that each party makes an equal contribution be economic or non-economic and the classic argument for a non-economic contribution is well I've, I've raised the children while you've gone off to work and that well, frankly is arguably harder but but certainly equal but if there's a situation where someone let's say there's a traditional makeup a homemaker and a breadwinner but no children I just do wonder whether that situation on a short marriage basis, whether that that kind of un, unequal contribution could be reflected. But but I, I'm sure that Mr. Justice Mostyn would agree with me, having read ENL. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think so. I think um, I mean the principle of childlessness um, that was referred to in ENL that w w was uh, a factor that actually crept in 
and Mostyn's was have been arranged when applying the sharing principle in a short marriage. Um, so I think the, the sort of presence or not of children really um, goes to the issue of needs rather than sharing. Um, and then in terms of sort of the, the uh, matrimonial quest um, and how that has effectively built up. I mean, there's sort of conflicting um, points of view in relation to that. Um, you know, of course, there was in, in Miller, um, there was a sort of uh, this childless relationship of about I think, three years. Um, and the matrimonial quest in that case was not divided equally. Um, and therefore, the principles in Foster were not adopted in that case. And that was largely due to the husband um, amassing significant wealth during the course of the marriage. But that was uh, really attributable to pre-acquired assets. And um, as such, the court uh, eschewed the yardstick of equality. I think the wife was ordered about five million um, of the uh, 19 million pounds worth of matrimonial assets. I think there was about 17 million of non-matrimonial assets in that case. Is it fair to say then that that if there's enough money to go around, which is always the big if, but with a short marriage, what you can effectively do is divide the matrimonial pot equally. Everyone keeps everything else. And even in, you know, it was 79-21 in ENL, that's still going to be fair because it reflects the duration of the marriage. Yeah, I I, I think that that is um, the, the approach that uh, the court tends to adopt uh, in, in terms of um, short marriage cases. All right, let's muddy the waters just to keep things interesting. Um, prenups are, are a separate thing. Um, you've obviously got, you've got Rad Macker and the line of authorities there. A lot of people these days, when they cohabit, uh, will enter declarations of trust and that kind of thing. Those arguments, we know that those documents, when we see them 15 years down the line, are effectively worthless. But what about after six months, a year, two years of marriage? Are we still going to have regard to those agreements? Well, I think, the, first of all, the distinction between non-matrimonial property and matrimonial property was carved out in the case of uh, white and white. Um, non-matrimonial property is likely to be more of a magnetic factor in a short marriage, as we've said, as there's likely to be more of it uh, on the basis that the marriage is short and thus relatively little time to amass a quest. Um, it would be usual for the party who owns the non-matrimonial property to retain it, save where needs dictate otherwise, as we've said. And again, going back to ENL, the, the sharing of non-matrimonial property, absent a needs or compensation argument, uh, would be extremely rare. And I think Mostyn used the white leopard analogy in that case. Yeah, I suppose it also it comes down to um, the sort of mingling argument. I mean, if you have a declaration of trust over the family home, for example, that records that, I don't know, wife contributed 600,000, husband contributed 50,000, I think you, you would struggle, wouldn't you, after a year of marriage to say, well, it's all been matrimonialized and mingled. That's still going to be reflected in terms of unequal contributions, even though technically you might call it the matrimonial pot. Yeah, I think so. I agree. OK. Um, spousal maintenance. That's <laughs> yes. The other one. That's the other tricky one, isn't it? Is it, it, uh, what What impact does duration of marriage have on spousal maintenance because you've, you've already cited authorities where the court was satisfied that joint joint lives order could be made well yeah i mean in the recent case of ff and kf um most effectively said that there was no rule or guideline 
to the effect that there should be a term order in a short marriage case. And I think he referred back to um, Mr. Justice Ward's uh, decision in C&C that I mentioned earlier, which uh, was generous, but within the bracket of discretion. Um, in FF and KF, this involved a short marriage of about two years, but the relationship, I think, spanned over around nine years. Um, the husband was very rich. He had assets of about 37 million at the time of marriage. Um, sadly, the wife suffered psychological harm as a result of the breakdown of the marriage. Um, the wife was ordered uh, 4.2 million. So she had a fund of 2.3 million to buy a flat in Marylebone and 1.34 million representing a Duxbury fund for a term of years. Uh, the husband appealed that decision on the basis that he felt that the wife's needs were overly assessed, as it were, particularly in relation to uh, the maintenance point. Um, the appeal was dismissed and uh, Mostyn said that there is an almost unbounded discretion in respect of the needs principle. Um, in this case, the term of years was right and un uncontroversial. And in fact, had the marriage been longer, he would have made an order on the lifetime duxury basis. So I suppose it's really, it comes back to that question that I think you mentioned earlier of the causal connection between needs and the marriage. Yes, absolutely. But even the Miss Justice Mostyn's comment there that if it had been a longer marriage, she would give a lifetime order sort of suggests that the duration of the marriage is still impacting on his assessment of needs or the, the, the responsibility of the breadwinner to be that provider. Yes, I mean, I mean, it, that that would uh, seem to be the case. And as he um, echoed in the DNL, it has um, a forceful impact to the duration of the marriage um, does have. And he said uh, in FF and KF that needs is effectively a term of art. And I think he sort of referred back to um, the cases of uh, Mills McCartney and Jafali and uh, AAZ and BBZ, in which in the latter, I think the needs award was 224 million. And uh, clearly, he, as he noted, nobody needs 224 million. It's really just, um, you know, a case by case uh, analysis. But the main factors to consider um, are the extent of the payer's wealth. And I think that sort of plays in with uh, FF and KF, mm. uh, the length of the marriage, uh, the applicant's age and health and the standard of living enjoyed by the parties, although the latter can't dominate the case. No, because I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? If you, you can, if you're spending £100,000 a year on handbags uh, for 10 years, it's very different to spending £100,000 a year for one year and then expecting that to be artificially maintained. Yeah. Um. Right. All right. Well, look, I I don't really want to to ask any more questions as much as I could because it's really it's spoilers for your book, and we have to leave we have to leave something for the readers to 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 read. Um, thank you, Sadie. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Oh, thank you very much, Mark. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Good. We enter, please. Um, and listeners, we may have one more episode for you to sneak into this series if it doesn't evaporate in this relentless heat. Uh, but otherwise, thank you for listening throughout the series. We'll be back later on this year for series six. And we're always grateful for any topic suggestions or feedback. And our emails are on the website. Thank you again, Sadie. Thank you, uh, Mark. Thank you. Thank you to the listeners. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.